Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton. Today, my guest is Joseph Graffer, who worked as a statistician for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for nearly 40 years. Between 1988 and 2013, he was the lead federal official responsible for managing the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, or NISDA one of the federal government's largest and most important ongoing health surveys. For 50 years, NISDA has measured Americans' use of illegal drugs, prescription drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. Graffer managed the survey through five presidential administrations and through countless drug scares and policy shifts until he retired in 2014. As the author of dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and hundreds of government reports, Graffer is a widely recognized expert on survey methodology and how to use statistics to measure drug use. His new book, War Stories from the Drug Survey, How Culture, Politics, and Statistics Shaped the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, came out in 2019. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a bit about yourself. You're a statistician by trade and an expert in survey methodology. How did you become interested in statistics? What got you into this field? Well, I I think as a child, I was uh, uh, interested in math. I liked math, and I did well math in school. And um, I I was also uh, really a baseball fan and a baseball player, and I loved everything about baseball and um, so there were a lot of statistics in baseball and, and uh, you're collecting baseball cards. You get all the stats on the back of the cards and there were books with a lot of interesting statistics and really got into that. Plus I was uh, interested in, I like playing board games and ended up uh, making up my own games, um, cards and a lot um, in that. Probably lost all the bulls and probably think joint distributions. And uh, so when I, uh, I got into college and finally took a probability course, uh, I, I really realized that uh, I really liked this stuff and it was it came natural to me. And and uh, so I decided to get a major in statistics, which is what I did at the University of Buffalo. So tell me more about how you got involved with public service. Uh, did you always want to work for the federal government? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. When I was in college, uh, getting towards the end of my 
uh, undergraduate work, I um, I um, applied to all kinds of for all kinds of jobs, and uh, and uh, one was the federal government, and um, I uh, ended up getting a call from somebody at the National Center for Health Statistics uh, about a job there, and uh, looked pretty interesting to me, and it was. Uh, pretty much the only only serious offer I got for a job right out of college. And uh, so I took the job. It meant uh, moving from Buffalo to Washington, D.C., but um, I wanted to go where I could find a job that interested me, and it turned out pretty well. I really liked working in the government and uh, came to really love working in public service, and uh, particularly in statistics where the, the data are used for, you know, good purposes in terms of um, helping improve public health and really saving lives as, as I uh, learned early on in talking with some of the other statisticians that the data really have important uses for public health. Right. So how did you get involved then with the National Survey on Drug Use and Health? Did you have any interest in studying patterns of drug use before? Well, not really. Um, I, uh, in working at NCHS, I, w- I was involved in lots of different health surveys, um, including the health interview survey, the largest survey that the Department of Health and Human Services does, and also the hospital discharge survey, and really all of the surveys they did there. And I worked with a lot of really good statisticians and public health analysts and learned a lot about the data. And um, after about four years, I decided to uh, look around for something else, and um, turned out there was a the National Institute on Drug Abuse was looking for a statistician, and they brought me in, and uh, I switched over to them. It was a whole different environment where, instead of being in a uh, large statistical agency with lots of different statisticians surveys, it was a it was a very really just vision of statistical. Uh, uh, statisticians and um, and data sets, and uh, they were in the process. In the eighty, they were in the process of building uh, a statistical unit that uh, included most of the primary surveys related to drug abuse in the federal base, the hospital emergency departments, and they had surveys of treatment programs and people in treatment, and they also had this pretty small survey of, of the general population, the household survey on drug abuse. And um, so that's how I ended up getting involved in that. They, uh, after a few years working there, they they needed somebody to take charge of that survey. And so they decided I was the right person. I had all the background in survey work at NCHS that helped me uh, qualify for for being in charge of that one survey. And, and then as it turned out, uh, right after I took over the survey, it uh, became uh, much more prominent in the, in the government as, as a primary survey because of the interest in more drug data at the time. And so the survey began expanding at that time. Yeah, it's a fascinating time for you to be at NIDA. NIDA only really came into being a couple of years before you started. So you're kind of getting in at the ground floor and getting in... Um, with NISDA at the ground floor, you're watching it evolve. But before we get into what it became, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about where the survey came from. 
So if any of our listeners have read my book, Grassroots, they'll know that Raymond Schaefer, a certain former Republican governor of my home state of Pennsylvania, he plays a big role in both of our books, um, which just about made me fall off my chair when I was reading yours. So where did the National Survey on Drug Use and Health come from? And what does Raymond Schaefer have to do with it? Yes, well, this is something, uh, a whole topic that I really learned about uh, after I retired when I was working on the book because it was just a few years before I came to NIDA. I knew a lot of the people that were involved from the beginning, um, but we never really talked about the details of it. But um, really the the survey began with uh, as, as sort of a component of President Nixon's drug war. He declared a war on drugs back around 1970 and uh actually we're on and, it is the um, 50th anniversary of nixon's declaration of the drug war today the day we are recording june 17th 2021 he uh, made the announcement on june 17th 1971 so it's very appropriate for us to be speaking about this today it's a uh, it's a moment of historical uh, kismet for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't know that um yeah so um the um the plan at the time um, of course, there was lots of legislation, and uh, and um, one of the first steps was to create this commission to study the drug problem and, and make recommendations as to what to do about it. And uh, as most people know, the 60s were a period of really increasing uh, drug use among young people, starting with the college students. And, and at the same time, um, this was during the Vietnam War, and... Um, there were lots of protests about the war, and people, a lot of people weren't happy about it. And there was also a direct connection to um, drug use in that uh, some of the soldiers were coming back with drug problems because the drug use was so rampant in, in Southeast Asia, particularly uh, heroin use, uh, the heroin being widely available in Vietnam. But uh, so Nixon, um, you know, in terms of politics, um, he made the connection between the drug the, the uh, drug use uh, culture among young people and the protest against the war, which is uh, what he perceived as uh, uh, very bad for him, and and the, the people who were protesting were kind of on his enemies list uh, in general, and so um, his idea of tying in the drug problem with the anti-war movement was uh, that he could punish and uh, keep under control some of the protesters by uh, also controlling and punishing drug users. And um, But he set up this commission to study and uh, recommend um, policies related to the drug abuse. And but he created the commission with friendly people friendly to his point of view, including the uh, uh, former governor of Pennsylvania, Ray Schaefer, who um, um, I guess had the reputation of, of being very uh, hard line on drug, drug use, uh, drug, drug um, enforcement. And so uh, Nixon was expecting a report that would recommend Strong penalties for marijuana use and uh, other other things um, 
that would, um, you know, rely on enforcement and arresting people. Well, uh, the first thing the commission did was, um, of course, they 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 reviewed lots of existing research studies that were in the literature, but they all felt like they needed to, to collect their own data, do their own survey, to uh, find out what was really going on in the population, and partly because to get the use estimates, but but really just as importantly was the attitudes of, about drug use and what to do about it. So um, turns out there was a, another commission and another study that had been done earlier on pornography in America. And um, there was a researcher uh, and a research organization called Response Analysis Corporation run by um, uh, Herb Abelson that had done a, a national household survey asking questions about pornography, people's use of pornography and uh, attitudes about it. And they developed a methodology that was um, appropriate and worked well in getting uh, accurate responses about sensitive behaviors, sensitive issues like pornography and drug, illegal drug use. And the, the, it's really based around the idea that privacy is important if people are given an opportunity to answer questions in private, they will reveal um, their secrets and their things that they might not uh, report in an open interview or telephone interview. So the the way it worked was using self-administered answer sheets. Um, The questions were put on paper answer sheets handed to the respondents. It was face-to-face. These were interviews done in people's homes all over the country. And uh, the responses were written on the sheet without the interviewer uh, seeing them. And then they were put into an envelope, sealed right on the spot, and uh, mailed. It could have been mailed. Uh, the, the, the interview into a mailbox and dropped to a research uh, facility. But um, the, the respondents were invited to walk with with them and see that it was put in the mailbox. So all these, all these procedures were put in place, promises of confidentiality and procedures that, that were promoting the privacy. Um, and that was the methodology that then was used on the drug survey. And, and although it changed, changed forms and was expanded and improved on over the years, it was, it was that core uh, methodology that persists today in the survey. It's really remarkable that, that, you know, the survey itself is so interesting because it's trying to generate national numbers on something most people don't want to admit to doing, you know, illegal drugs. And I think this is a problem that a lot of doctors and school counselors and others run into, you know, getting people to admit to drug use so you can actually see its impact on the population, uh, health statistics, things like that. Uh, I think that idea that your <laughs> the, the, the methodology of the drug use survey was sort of formed around uh, similar useful methods from a pornography survey is, is a really, I mean, you're going to talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I guess I never associated those with uh, federal government statistics, and yet here's the link. This is sort of, <laughs> you know, how the methodology was formed. I think that's great. Um, so yeah. the survey starts during a period when, as you said, Richard Nixon is really focused on marijuana, and it reflected that. 
what changes did the survey undergo when other drugs, um, and I'm thinking specifically of crack cocaine here, when they came on the scene? Yes. Um, well, one thing um, that I wanted to mention about the uh, um, initial surveys, they were really focused on marijuana and attitudes. And the, the big result of the survey was that the um, population, while it, while it really, uh, most people felt that marijuana was dangerous, a dangerous drug, and it was um, uh, uh, harmful to the health, um, the research studies that they reviewed were, had actually been uh, studied in, in different kinds of ways uh, determined that it really wasn't that dangerous uh, if, it, if it wasn't used, you know, too, too excessively. And so there was a little bit of a conflict, but that was a big result of the survey. Now, of course, the president, uh, Nixon, didn't like that and tried to, tried to have it changed, but uh, uh, to, to his credit, Ray Schaefer, uh, you know, he reported the results accurately and, and uh, it didn't change Nixon's policies, he still favored the uh, uh, enforcement and still pushed for marijuana being illegal at the federal level, which it still is today. Um, but um, that was an example of how uh, the politicians and the scientists um, don't always you know, agree on, on how the survey should be designed. And um, so a few years later, uh, now, now the, the initial survey uh, was done by this commission. They did two surveys, and then a, a couple years later, in 1974, the National Institute on Drug Abuse was created, and that's when they decided to make it actually a federal government um, ongoing survey. And so they kept the same design pretty much, and it, it changed in terms of the questionnaire, you know, over the years. Um, but um, in the 1980s, when cocaine became uh, a prominent problem, particularly crack cocaine, um, there were some realizations that it really wasn't sufficient. And first of all, um, we had the issue with crack cocaine in the early 80s. And because the survey was done every two or three years, and because of the lead time to design the questionnaire and get the right questions on the survey, it really uh, became clear that the survey was was not uh, sufficient in its design to uh, pick up uh, emerging drugs like that. So um, when, uh, when I came on, uh, became in, involved in the survey uh, before the 1985 survey, um, this is when crack was emerging as a problem. And of course, we had the 1982 survey that didn't have, have didn't mention crack. And then the 1985 survey was coming into its design stages, which also didn't have anything about crack, but it was too late to, to change it because of the lead time required. And then the next survey that was um, scheduled was 1988. So, and of course, we had you collect the survey in 88 and we wouldn't have any data until probably 1989. So this was a long time to get data on crack. And so it was realized that maybe we need to do the survey more, 
more often. So that's when it began. There began to be a push for more frequent uh, um, conduct of the survey, and there were many debates about how frequently that should be. But then also um, the size of the survey, because of the correct numbers and the need to break it out uh, geographically and uh, ethnically and age-wise, the survey was just too small in those early days. So there, there was a big push to expand the survey. And particularly uh, the one big event that happened in the 80s was in 1986 when uh, Len Bias uh, died of a cocaine overdose. And that was a pretty big uh, um, wake-up call for the country and for the government. And um, um, it led to um, a lot of funding increases in the government. Um, was big news at the time when he overdosed. He was a number one draft choice for out of college. You just graduated from the University of Maryland and he was drafted by the Boston Celtics and and everybody was anticipating he's going to be the next superstar in an NBA. And um, there he was uh, gone from, from a drug, a cocaine overdose, uh, which really at the time, many people didn't feel like regular co co casual cocaine use was, was uh, that dangerous. And, changed a lot of people's attitudes and it's it was something that we actually could see in the data in terms of the attitude data perceived harm for example uh, asking people how much harm they perceived in uh, in uh, if they were taking cocaine and it really uh, jumped up significantly right after that um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. That seems like a big shift, though, to go from every three years to suddenly uh, needing the survey to be you know, so much more uh, frequent and so much bigger. Uh, is the survey now currently uh, annual, biannual? So what, what change did this made to the timing of the survey? And how much did that complicate your life if it takes so long to design this thing? Yeah, well, um, in, uh, the survey was done every two or three years with a, with a sample of about, uh, it had reached about 8,000 per, uh, per, per year by 88 and 90. Uh, so right after the overdose uh, and the uh, national attention on the cocaine problem um, and other drugs too, um, that's when uh, one of the things that, that happened was the Office of National Drug Control Policy was created out of the White House 
and with their there was their legislation they had a requirement to collect data and use data to assess the problem set goals and, and track how they were meeting those goals and so as soon as they were created they were staffing up and they immediately started calling me and others at NIDA about the data can you can you do the survey every year can you expand the sample and this is what created uh, a lot of um, disagreements and um, uh, differing opinions about what should happen. A lot of people at NIDA, particularly some of the researchers, the grantees of NIDA, felt like that was too much money to put into the survey. It should go into some other kinds of smaller studies. But ONDCP was persistent, and uh, after it took a little time, and it was gradual, the survey became... Uh, annual uh, starting in 1990 uh, they they uh, demanded a 91 survey we had already planned 80 and 88 and 90 and uh, they demanded that the next contract be a 91 and then a 92 and eventually uh, it, would be, uh, it uh, was also expanded to become much bigger uh, and this all happened during the 80s uh, and then there was also a uh, uh, in interest in expanding it to the point where we could have state-level data. In other words, certain data collected in every state, estimates for every state, um, partly because of the uh, funding of treatment programs from the federal government was done through a block grant to states with not a whole lot of monitoring but uh, and not a whole lot of data that was comparable. States had their own data, but you couldn't compare one state to another, so you needed a national survey done with the same methodology across all the states in order to make comparisons. So that was what was eventually implemented in 1999. And since then, since 1999, there, the uh, well, the other change that happened in that, in that same year was that the survey was converted from a paper and pencil with the answer sheets put in the envelopes to a computerized interview where the same self-administration was done, but it was done on a laptop computer. And pretty much since that time, the survey has been the same methodology. So do you, to do, in order to do this survey, in order to bring these laptops into people's homes to ask them these questions, do you hire a ground force of people, almost like the census is done every 10 years? Do, does the survey itself have uh, employees that go out and, and go into the field? How do you actually collect the uh, answers and, and who does that? Yeah, well, it's nowhere near as big as the census, but it's a similar kind of thing. What we uh, did uh, well starting in 1999. We uh, went under contract that we managed in house in the government. We had a staff of about 10 people that 10 or 12 that would uh, um, manage the, the entire project. And the um, the contractor would do the hiring of the field staff, and um, they started out in that year with about a thousand interviewers. Basically, they had a, a small independent survey of at least a thousand people. 
in every state in the country and D.C. Um, now, the design of it and the way it was collected um, did uh, evolve over the years, and they were able to do the survey with uh, more like 600 interviewers uh, a year. And um, that's about where they are now, around, around maybe around 600. And it's a huge management issue. There's field supervisors in every state. And there are training sessions throughout the year, um, a big training session of the entire field staff every January. And then um, periodic trainings to hire new staff when there's turnover. And so it, it is a pretty big uh, project, and uh, every interviewer is uh, given a laptop computer as well as a a uh, handheld device, um, now cell phones, uh, to uh, track the uh, the management of the field work. But the actual interview is done on a laptop computer, and it's all programmed uh, so that the questions come up on the screen. Interviewer, and it's also a um, uh, recorded uh, interview. So there are, um, it's voice recorded for, for a few years. We actually had an, a person who would record every question and that would be all pieced together on, on the, uh, on the laptop. Uh, later on, we eventually used some voice, uh, uh electronically, um, uh, generated voices when the technology reached, you know, the quality we needed, uh, so, uh, so the respondents could wear headphones and actually do the whole interview without being able to read the screen. And that allowed us to include uh, poor readers or non-readers uh, uh, to do the interview. That's amazing. So it's very accessible. Um, that's great. So in your book's subtitle, you note that culture and politics have shaped the survey to me, as a non-statistician, statistics often seem like they're outside of political and cultural influence, but you seem to be arguing that they aren't. So how have culture and politics influenced uh, NISDA, the survey? Well, um, it's, um, I like to say it didn't have much influence, but um, it was um, a... Uh, it was a battle, and, and actually that's, that was one of the main reasons I wrote the book was because it was so interesting to, to see how that whole uh, conflict played out um, between the politicians statisticians. It's kind of like the, uh, the same thing we hear about today, the politicians versus the science. And uh, because this, the survey work, uh, survey design, it really is kind of a science. So these methodologies, like using the answer sheets and the laptop computer, the way the questions are worded, the way the questionnaire is structured, other things like how we approach the respondents with our initial uh, letters, uh, inviting them to participate, and uh, the incentives, like payments that are given to respondents, all these things are were tested scientifically and evaluated, and uh, were built, you know, according to these scientific results. And so, when the, when the example, when ONDC 
and they wanted the survey added and they wanted certain questions added or changed, they pushed us to make these changes right away. And some of the changes were bad ideas. Some of the changes were uh, things that needed to be uh, developed and tested and would take a few years and they were impatient about that. So there was a lot of back and forth and um, we um, compromised on some things, but we, tr we never really compromised on the science, um, but we did make, you know, certain content changes in the questionnaire. Uh, so the, the politics, uh, the politicians did affect the survey. And, and, and at, at the same time, I mean, as statisticians running the survey, we, we were always um, um, interested and felt like it was our responsibility to provide the data that was needed by whoever, researchers, politicians. And so we did make real efforts to include what they were interested in, as long as it was done in a way that collected valid data and, um, and gave useful results. On the other end of the, of the study, you have the reporting of the results, which is uh, a major part of our jobs too. We, we were the producers of the statistical reports that uh, reported the results of the survey. And, and when it comes down to interpretation, um, you know, looking at the statistical significance, looking at the methodologies and how they affected the results and, and acknowledging that there's definitely some underreporting, but we had a hard time measuring it. And so, uh, of course, we couldn't always control what the politicians would report on the survey, particularly the politicians outside of the executive branch. I mean, there was some coordination within the executive branch, but even there, ONDCP sometimes, uh, you know, made statements that we wouldn't have necessarily agreed with. And, and uh, you know, we dealt with that. Uh, we stuck to our guns, tried to stay out of trouble with them, but um, they, uh, for the most part, they, they were pretty, uh, pretty good about it, but um, there were times when, when the political forces got, um, you know, in the way of the correct reporting of the results. Sure. I want to talk more about what happens to the information the survey generates it, and who uses it, and for what purposes. But very briefly, I, I kind of want to go back to something you said before, where you're talking about, you know, certain politicians would be pushing you to include certain things, you know, what they were interested in. And that that feels very uh, similar to what essentially Nixon was trying to do, to, to use this survey to generate the information he wanted about uh, marijuana and its potential dangers, right, and its links to criminality and deviant behavior and all of that. So it seems like this, this is a problem the survey has run into time and time again from its very inception. But could you give us an example of, you, I, I don't want to get you into any trouble, you don't have to name names, but could you give us an example of uh, something that you were pushed to include uh, by by some higher ups? What What did what did politicians want the survey uh, to ask about that had not been included before? Let's see. I think um, there were things that they wanted to ask about that we didn't have enough sample for, and they were just too rare. And there were things that were very difficult to measure, and uh, we, we had, a, had a lot of trouble, for example, 
coming up with a definition of trauma, which recent, more recently uh, with the mental health interest, there was um, a lot of interest in measuring trauma, but we could never really come up with a, uh, a measurable definition that everybody agreed with. And another another uh, topic of interest was treatment need, and there were there were disagreements about how that would be measured, and it was it was difficult to to get at that. Um, I don't think there were any examples of um, really um, bad um, things that they wanted included. It was more that that they um, I mean it's not like they wanted to to see certain results so that they could you know say that uh, marijuana is bad. Uh, they were more um, um, thinking of um, what was needed, what what was needed, you know, however it came out. I, I can't say that in my experience there was a whole lot of um, thinking ahead of, you know, what can we, what can we uh, collect that will enhance our position, uh, uh, making a certain argument. Um, it was, um, I, I never had experience with anything like what, what Nixon did before, before my time. Maybe that's good to hear, right? <laughs> that's, that's reassuring. Uh, so yeah, but, but I will say that, that with, with the way this, this, there's so much information, the questionnaire has so much information and adding a few more things, you can even get more information that. Um, you can always find something in the data to support your position. Um, it doesn't mean that that should be the, the focus of the reporting of the results. We didn't do it that way. But there would always be uh, ways that people could find something in the data and they would use that to make an argument. Sometimes it was inappropriate because it was based on too small a sample uh, and we would have to make a comment about that. But... Um, that was uh, one way that, you know, some of these things uh, created um, situations where there were disagreements. Well, so, I mean, that, I think, leads to our, our next uh, conversation topic quite logically. What, what happens to the information the survey generates? Um, who are you creating it for? Who uses it? And for what purposes? Well, that's a good question because um, the uh, it's it's probably another another area of uh, I guess I, I don't know if I'd say disagreement, but uh, it's been a problem in that that um, I think the um, the data uh, underused uh, and it more if it could be made more accessible um, the data files for for researchers to analyze. I think it would greatly uh, it would create a lot of good research and would be very useful. And that's been pretty weak in terms of government support and funding of, of that aspect of it. But um, the um, there are multiple audiences, and the researchers is, is one audience. But the uh, uh, the main audience, the most important audience, is the policymakers, the people who who um, make decisions, Congress and the White House and local leaders, state leaders who need data to uh, 
uh, track problems, look at you know what are the emerging problems that need a change in policy or a change in attention by the government, and and also what policies in terms of treatment uh, availability and where where is treatment needed? What populations need treatment? What are the uh, prevention messages that might uh, be helpful to uh, uh, get people to not use drugs um, and to stay out of trouble with drugs. Uh, all these things that are uh, involved in uh, different aspects of drug policy um, that could benefit from from solid data. And and this is just one do- source of data that that uh, is can be used in conjunction with others. Uh, there's there's a major survey of of high school students done by the University of Michigan under a grant with NIDA called Monitoring the Future. And there are, there's, of course, the drug overdose data that's used. There's lots of data that's collected in treatment programs on people coming into treatment, what drug problem they have, and whether, uh, how long they stay in treatment, and things, uh, uh, the um, uh, characteristics of treatment programs, what services they provide, where are they located, is it, is it accessible? So there are lots of different data that can be pulled together and used um, for policy purposes. And 50 years of it, which is really pretty remarkable. Um, so you had mentioned before a little bit about how, you know, someone could look at the survey data and kind of find whatever they want within it to support their position, regardless of what their position might be. Uh, Could you give us an example maybe of how this information has been, I don't know if I should say misused or used selectively uh, for specific um, and perhaps political purposes? Yeah, well, one example would be um, right after ONDCP was created. And in fact, I think... um, the first release of data uh, from this survey when after ONDCP was created, um, of course, this was a time when in the 80s when, when cocaine was the issue and everybody was uh, uh, expecting that the survey would show big increases in cocaine use. And partly because of the declines after uh, Len Bias overdosed, um, Really turn out that when we when we um, um, sent the CP shut, he went down. They confused at first. They didn't give the data. Uh, they decided to burst um, the data. Uh, they didn't want to change any data, but they wanted to. They still wanted to make the point that the cocaine problem was getting worse. And in some ways, it was because the overdose data, the emergency department overdose data, as well as the death data and the treatment data, were showing more people with with cocaine problems. But the survey was showing fewer people using cocaine. So it was kind of a dilemma. And the way they solved it was there that uh, they they characterized the cocaine problem is a, is a two two part uh, problem there was casual use and there was hardcore use and uh, so the casual use was going down and the hardcore use was going up and they 
searched for and identified some specific items in the survey that did show uh, that things were not getting better, that things were slightly increasing, and that was frequent cocaine use, uh, which was defined at that time as weekly use or more than more than 50 times in a year of cocaine uh, among cocaine users, and that was going up. And so they pulled that out and they focused on that. And this is where, uh, I mean, the data were true. It was, you know, it was statistically significant, and so it was reportable. But on the other hand, it was a very small sample. You know, we only had uh, 8,000 respondents, and out of that, only a handful were, were, you know, frequent cocaine users. But nevertheless, you know, they uh, they highlighted that, um, and they actually made comments. This was when Bill Bennett was the uh, ONDCB director. They actually um, kind of dissed the survey and saying it's it's no good for picking up hardcore use. And they actually started started uh, funding some special studies, finding other ways of of uh, getting estimates of hardcore use uh, as an adjunct to the survey. So it was an interesting time, and um, that whole idea of the uh, duality of the drug problem uh, kind of persisted for a while, and uh, eventually the survey size, when it got much, much bigger, we did have a better tracking of uh, drug uh, problematic drug use in the survey, and we're able to estimate how many people were dependent on different drugs. And, uh, surprisingly, found like over two million people dependent on marijuana, even though, uh, and this was based on uh, medical criteria of what dependence, you know, def- that defined what dependence was. So that was kind of surprising to people, but uh, so that was an example of um, how ONDCP pulled out a uh, certain data to make the point that they wanted to make. Sure. And were those adjacent surveys then uh, removed or ended after NISDA was expanded, or are those adjacent ones still being uh, still being used? Well, the, you mean the hardcore drug use study? Uh, they they uh, they never really got it underway because uh, it, it turned out to do it the way they did it. They did a, a, an example study in Chicago. And it required a lot of data collection from different uh, emergency departments, treatment centers, uh, jails, uh, and homeless. And they tried to get uh, all that. And it cost a lot of money. And so in, in terms of making that nationwide, it would have been extremely expensive. So, um, But other, other, other methods that were uh, used that could be used to um, to look at the hardcore drug use and uh, which which actually is another another um, issue is how do you even define hardcore drug use it's not a technical term and and there are different studies that use different definitions but uh, the one thing that we've uh, done with the survey is tried to keep the methodology consistent from year to year uh, even when you expanded the sample, we try to keep this, the way of re, way of collecting and analyzing the data consistent. 
um, which allowed us to track trends. And so acknowledging the undercount of heroin addicts and even heavy cocaine users in the survey, um, we could at least say that we're doing it the same way every year so we can look at trends. And so that became you know, much more useful to look at the trends in, in those uh, more rare and hardcore type drug use patterns. Let's go back and talk a bit about you again. Um, how does a statistician come to write a book about drugs? What did you want to write this book for? And who did you want to write this book for? Well, the reason I wrote the book uh, was for a couple of reasons. One was because I felt like there were so many interesting stories to tell, uh, war stories about the, uh, the drug uh, war and the, uh, uh, the policies and what was going on in the government. I knew that uh, a lot of it wasn't really known by the general public and even by people that were involved in the survey. But, I mean, I was – I had um, – Involvement at every level of the project, being in charge of early um, stages, I was in, involved in the detailed parts of the study. I knew every aspect of how it was done, and, and that continued until later years when it was bigger and it got more attention. and And I was the official that had to go and um, brief the uh, drug czars and the secretaries of HHS on the results, and I have conversations with them about the data, and so I, I could translate that back into, well, what should we do with the survey reporting and design based on what they said? And so all of these stories, which I had documented, I had notes from all these events that occurred and uh, emails and memos, and I felt like I should just preserve it. And uh, there wasn't much preservation going on in the government at the time. There was more interest in getting rid of paper and books and reports and digitizing everything and putting it on files, which I think are a little harder to find. And some of it wasn't even being saved. So, um, and when I retired, I had all this information and I, I, I knew there would be people interested in particularly survey statisticians, people working on other surveys would learn from some of these experiences and and particularly people who worked in the drug field would learn how the data came about. Um, and it's interesting uh, that um, for me, um, I, I think um, there's, there's a few, I've met a handful of others, but um, in the there's a saying among statisticians, survey statisticians too, that uh, statisticians, statisticians is a great job because you get to play in everyone else's backyard, which means that it's a, it's a skill and a, a field that you can apply to economics, you can apply to health, you can apply to business practices and, and just about anything you can think of, sports course, baseball. Um, and so there are statisticians and many statisticians work as consultants and they work in all these different backyards. Um, but it's not so common to find statisticians who stick with one study their whole career. And that's, I think, uh, a real benefit to the project because there are really things that, you know, I found when we bring in consultants from other, you know, general backgrounds, who um, weren't necessarily familiar with the drug field, it took them some time 
to learn about the issues and how the data and statistical issues, you know, were special for this particular field. And um, they would never come up to speed fully. And so um, I, I felt like we had an advantage in myself and a few other people who worked on this survey for, you know, a long time and, and became familiar with the details and understood how statistical practices could, uh, you know, really uh, apply to this particular project. Well, Joe, we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go, I want to thank you as a drug historian for writing this book and collecting these stories. I think the uh, surveys about drug use, like monitoring the future in NISDA, have been incredibly important uh, to my work and my research. And and uh, the fact that you've had you know the firsthand uh, front row uh, you know witness uh, and and sort of ability to write this this testimonial to the history of this remarkable, if kind of on the low key sort of <laughs> not fully understood phenomenon um, is amazing. It is a, it is a service to drug historians uh, and will be for a long time in the future. Uh, but before I let you go, I'd like to ask our traditional last question here on the new books network. I know you're retired, so you might not be, you know, <laughs> you know, you might have a different answer, but what are you working on right now? What can I expect to interview about later on? <laughs> well, I don't think you're. You probably won't want to want to do any more interviews because I haven't really been working in the drug field. Um, I for several years. Let's see, I retired in early 2014, and for the next four or five years, I worked as a consultant. So I was still involved in the survey uh, in many different aspects, um, including with the National Institute on Mental Health with their use of the NISDA data and um, also Bureau of Justice Statistics on uh, a study to use the NISDA data to uh, one of their, uh, to con construct a way of estimating mental illness among prisoners, inmates. Um, so um, I enjoyed all of that work, but it, it kind of came to an end. And so I just sort of, uh, haven't really been doing any statistical work other than reading a few things here and there and uh, getting interested in how the government's been using the um, COVID data too. That was frustrating. <laughs> but um, I, um, right now, my next, um, I guess you could call it a book, it's turning into a book, is a family history story. I'm working on um, uh, a detailed family history story looking at my ancestors where they lived and where they worked. And kind of like the drug book, it's uh, what I'm trying to do is to tie, tie in the family story with other hist historical events and trends that were occurring at the time and where they were living and how it, how it affected their lives. So it's, it's in a similar in a way, but it's, it's not going to be a public book. I'll be just distributing it within the family. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a great project and a worthy use of your time. I want to thank you so much again for coming on the show, for uh, telling us your war stories, and for writing this book. I highly recommend our listeners check it out. It's an extraordinary chapter of American drug history uh, that you really brought to life. So thank you so much for talking, us to, to, talking to us today. <laughs> well, you're welcome, and thank you for doing the interview.